It is uh, Memorial Day weekend, and we want to take a moment uh, to remember those who have laid their life down and made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. Uh, Memorial Day is something very special to me. Um, I've had several friends who have served and been able to know some very uh, brave people. Um, I have an American flag in my office from uh, one of our members who uh, flew a mission in a Black Hawk that he gave to me um, after their success of that mission. And um, as some, there's many people here, usually on Memorial Day weekend, my tradition is to do the Murph workout in honor of Michael Murphy and several of you here who are CrossFitters. There will be several people from our church, a group of us doing that tomorrow together um, as a church family and a CrossFit family. And uh, we're really excited about that, but we want to honor um, all those who have fallen. And so we have a video presentation to show you this morning. They stood as heroes in our midst, with courage in their hearts and fists. And with each step they faced the call to serve their land, to give their all. They left behind their homes and kin for fields of battle fierce and grim. With steadfast hearts and selfless grace to fight for freedom in every place. They marched across the dusty sands to foreign shores and distant lands. And there they fought with all their might in blazing sun and darkest night. Their names now etched in history's page, a lasting tribute for every age. To those who served and fell in line to keep our freedoms ever shine. For those who paid the ultimate cost, their lives laid down, their battles lost their sacrifice a priceless gain for the freedom we proudly claim. We honor them with every breath and cherish them beyond their death, their bravery a beacon bright guiding us through the darkest night. So let us pledge with all our might to keep their legacy shining bright and hold them close within our heart their memories never to depart. Well, amen. And uh, it's awesome to uh, see you guys uh, today. And we've got uh, a really, really special guest. This is my good friend, uh, Kyle McLean. Um, hi, Kyle. Hi. <laughs> So, uh, Kyle and I have known each other for, man, 20 plus years, just about, I mean, a lot of years. And, um, he, uh, I, have known him for a long time and through a lot of different seasons of life. Um, uh, but you have three kids, right? And right. tell, tell everybody where all they, they are now because okay. they're all over the place. So I've got three kids. My oldest is Ian. He is up in Albany, New York, and he's married to my daughter-in-law, Ashley, and he is attending uh, grad school up there. And then I've got... Duncan and Natalie, who are twins. Duncan is a second lieutenant in the Marine Corps, and he's over in Okinawa right now. Um, don't ask me what he does, because I confuse it every time. And, he does <laughs> um, and then uh, Natalie is my daughter. She is um, a special needs child. Uh, Duncan and Natalie are 23, soon to be 24. And uh, Natalie functions kind of like an 18-month-old, basically. So um, she's our forever baby kind of girl, and um, she's... 
wonderful and challenging. And as because of her, I've walked through uh, an incredible journey of faith and forgiveness and loss and all that kind of stuff. So um, my family is everything to me. My wife, Gina, uh, my wife, Gina, is um, a pastor's daughter. She grew up in the Nazarene church and uh, met her uh, in college. And um, it's just been uh, an incredible thing for me to have family in so many different ways, both um, my wife and kids, but also my mom and dad and then church family and people like Michael and Brian and Luann, you know, um, it's, it, we've had a long history together and it's all been really, really wonderful. Yeah. Uh, so Kyle has been a friend for a long time, but you know, I've shared with you guys openly, uh, my kind of story and uh, battle with anxiety and stuff. And so, uh, when Kate was encouraging me to, to go talk to somebody, um, I was like, well, I'm not going to go see a counselor, but I'll go have tacos with Kyle. Uh, and so, <laughs> Kyle was like unofficially my first counselor, you know, and then he got to the point where he changed some work stuff and uh, couldn't meet with me. At least that's what he told me. And uh, so he couldn't meet with me. And she was like, no, you my, my wife, Kate, was like, you're, you're on a roll. You need to go see somebody. And so that ended up me uh, paying somebody $100 an hour. And it's not as fun when you can't get tacos with your counselor. Uh, that was a lot funner, although people would look at us very oddly. Uh, but we need to address an elephant in the room because I think many of you are saying to yourself right now, I, I, I know Kyle. I've seen Kyle before. And what it is, is this, this man was in the Super Bowl commercial this year. Um, t- tell him a little bit about the Super Bowl commercial that you're in, because this is a big deal. You're basically a celebrity that we so, have here. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a big thing. A woman at her, at her old church at New Life, um, she is a, a talent, made, uh, talent management person. She owns a talent agency. Yeah. I don't know how to say that. Um, but whenever something pops up that maybe they need either a biker or a bearded person or something like that, she'll call me and say, is this something you want to do? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. So I've, I've been able to actually, I've been on a billboard before, but it was on 70, 70 to 270 interchange. Um, but they superimposed a cat's face on my face. So I could tell people that's me. And they'd be like, yeah, whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, Super Bowl, it wasn't supposed to be a Super Bowl ad necessarily, but it's a it's, uh, um, Missouri tourism thing. And it runs on a bunch of different platforms. I've seen it on pop up on my Spotify uh, thing. But at any rate, I could ride a motorcycle and I look like a biker. So uh, they, I went out for a casting call and they were like, you know, yeah, you're the guy. And so I went out and spent a couple hours uh, riding somebody else's motorcycle, uh, not nearly as satisfying as my own motorcycle, but riding somebody else's motorcycle with a sidecar and she got all the lines and I was just there to drive her basically <laughs> is what it was. And it happened over and over again, because again, wasn't my motorcycle wasn't nearly as powerful. I got to be honest. And <laughs> just th- them chasing a truck and trying to make sure you hit the mark and then speed off and all this kind of stuff. I, I, Honestly, I questioned whether it would ever, that portion of the commercial would ever air because I thought, I'm not doing this right. There's like five, I mean, several times we had to do this kind of thing. So it pops up every once in a while. It's uh, the girl's name is Mo. The character's name is Mo. So if you ever see Mo when she's riding in a sidecar, that is me on the motorcycle. So. Yeah. Well, it was funny because I'm watching the Super Bowl and I'm like, I see, I see the thing and I'm like, uh, kind of looks like Kyle. And I was like, nah. 
And then you text me and my dad. Did you see the, did you see the commercial? Did you see the commercial? I was like, oh, it was, Kyle. It was. I, I got to be honest. I didn't even see it when it aired because I'm, I'm not a big sports guy. So I was at Home Depot. Uh, and <laughs> my wife called me and she's like, your commercial was on. Your commercial was on. I'm like, really? That's weird. I didn't think it was going to. I didn't know when it was going to air if it even would. And, uh, yeah, so uh, I, was, I was impressed, too, that it was actually on television. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty cool. So tell them a little bit about how long you've been in this field, uh, where you work now. Because as long as I've known you, you've worked in this field. But tell them a little bit just about your background and what you do. So um, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I've worked in a bunch of different settings. I've been doing mental health I've worked in since nah, – 91, probably, I'll say. And I've worked in boys' homes, and I've worked in hospital settings and outpatient settings. I've worked in severe and persistent mental illness um, for people that were living in the state hospital but had to be transitioned out because of age. So I've worked with geriatrics as well. Um, I did a, a bunch of different stuff. If you, if you can do something in mental health, chances are I've done it at some point in time. Um, for 13 years, I was the manager of uh, the after-hours behavioral health unit for Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield. So I even worked on the insurance side of it. That's when I went to the dark side for a little while. Um, but it made money. Uh, so I've, I've, I did that for about uh, 13 years. And then um, God honestly just... I always wanted to be in private practice. I, I had a little stint where I did private practice by myself for like a year. I couldn't get enough client base to actually leave my job. So I, uh, God opened up some doors. The pastor of the church that I go to now, his wife is a professional counselor and we were at a, a like a holiday party or something. And she said, have you ever thought about being in private practice? I'm like, yeah, all the time. I just can't figure out how you make money doing it. And she was like, well, we need men. We need male counselors in our practice. And so um, went and checked out her place and um, where she was working. And really, I thought, you know, this seems like something I can do. So I did that while I worked full-time for Anthem for a, uh, probably about a year, built up a client base, and then um, went full-time into private practice. So I've been doing private practice Four years now, I think four years now, um, and I work for Chesterfield Counseling Associates in Chesterfield, Missouri, and do a lot of marriage counseling. I love doing marriage and couples work, um, but I do individual work as well, and uh, working with everything from anxiety to depression to, you know, folks that, that I still have a heart for people that have severe and persistent mental illness, you know, schizophrenics and bipolar disorder and stuff like that. It's just, that's not usually what's common in a lot of private practice settings. So, um, but men's issues, spiritual issues. Um, it's funny cause I've got people that are Christians that come to me. I get people that are, that are not Christians and, you know, we kind of integrate faith into counseling if it's necessary, you know, if it's something that they have. Um, if they don't, then we, we work on the other areas of life that they need to work on. So about you know, like four, four years, something like that, working in private practice now. Very cool. So if you haven't been caught up, we've been in the series called Anxious About Nothing. We've been talking about the last five weeks, and you can get caught up on YouTube, Facebook, and Spotify, and all the different podcast places you can find. Um, but I thought it would be really good to bring in a professional, somebody who sees this, and somebody who's, again, way more intelligent about this stuff than I am, because I really covered the spiritual side of anxiety and, you know, addressed, you know, what Jesus and, you know, Paul say about this. So I wanted to bring 
Kyle in to ask him some questions. And you guys turned in some fantastic questions. But one of the things that Kyle and I, I've heard him talk about before is just about what happens to the body, you know, when we're anxious. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like, what are we going through when that happens? Yeah. So, uh, first off, also, the first time when he said somebody smarter than me was going to be talking about this, I really even didn't think he was talking about me. <laughs> that skipped me totally. But anyway, so um, so biologically, what's happening in your body whenever you are experiencing anxiety? So I use this as an example a lot of times. This I use for the brain, right? It's kind of shaped like a brain. you got the, you know, the, the spinal cord that goes out the back. But in the brain, in the midbrain, you've got a thing called the amygdala. Amygdala is in the midbrain, and you've got the prefrontal cortex in the front of the brain. Now, the amygdala's role, its job, its function, is to uh, control fight or flight for you and how you respond to things. Now, over time, the amygdala has become very, very acute to the ability to tell the rest of the body, hey, there's a problem. You've got to start doing something about this. The prefrontal cortex is the part that filters out a lot of stuff so you don't have to worry about other things, the, the, the stuff that you don't pay attention to. The best example I have usually is like if you're driving on 70 and you're heading east, your brain, you're not constantly going, oh, there's another car coming my way. Oh, there's another car coming my direction. Oh, there's another car coming my direction, right? As you're heading east and they're heading west and they're doing, you know, 80 miles an hour, your brain isn't saying, look out for those cars because they could come over and they could cross over into your lane and they might run into you. And, oh, look at the car next to you because that car might be coming up on you. And might... Your brain filters out all that kind of stuff because of the prefrontal cortex. So the amygdala lays dormant in those moments because it doesn't have a, a problem. It doesn't have anything to do. But if you're driving on that same highway and somebody starts coming over into your lane and getting closer to you, it starts firing off a little bit going, hey, pay attention to that over there because that's a potential problem. Right? So with people that, that suffer from anxiety and uh, OCD, um, the prefrontal cortex isn't functioning as properly as it could. Things are getting to the amygdala and causing it to fire off a little bit more. And with that, the amygdala, biologically what it does is it tells the rest of the body to start responding. So heart starts pumping, right? Because if we're going to be fighting or lighting, we need blood to be flowing to our extremities and pumping faster. And as it pumps faster, you start breathing heavier and deeper because oxygen needs to be flowing as well, right? So when people start experiencing anxiety, a lot of times they'll complain about shortness of breath or they'll complain about heart palpitations. Um, the other things that happen is as your blood is flowing, the body is also telling it, get that blood to the extremities. Make sure the arms are ready to fight or the legs are ready to run. One of the two things. So blood starts leaving other areas of your body, like your stomach, nervous stomach, things like that. It's because blood's starting to be directed into other areas. Tunnel vision, some people get tunnel vision. That's because... Uh, Blood's leaving the oculars, and it's going straight back to the, the extremities. Um, dry mouth is another thing that people experience sometimes. So the body is functioning in a way to make sure that blood is flowing to the, to the arms and legs so you can get ready to either fight or flight when you're experiencing anxiety. Now, the problem is that we can't really do much about that Biologically, I mean, you can't just will your blood to flow in different areas. And you can't even really will your heart to start stop beating fast. But one of the things you can do is control your breathing, which is one of the things we'll probably talk about at some point in time as far as what can I do 
with anxiety. But biologically, that's what's happening with you. Everything serves a purpose in how we're created. This, this thing you walk around in all day long is pretty magnificent in its function. And uh, the design is incredible. And the fact that a small thing can control so much is, I mean, in my opinion, the, the proof of a creator who actually oversees our function altogether. Oh, that's really cool. Um, so, you know, I, I shared with the church my uh, uh, dragging of my feet to, to go see a counselor, to talk to somebody after many, many years of, you know, conversations about this type of stuff. Um, and so uh, what would you tell somebody who's nervous about going to counseling? And, and how do you even go about finding a counselor? Because I think there's a lot of people in the room that's like, I've always felt like I needed to talk to somebody, but I just don't even know where to start. And I don't know. It just, it feels weird. And I think there's a lot of cultural, you know, ideas about counselors and something being wrong with you to go see a counselor. So what would you tell somebody who's thinking, thinking they need to go to a counselor, but they're kind of dragging their feet. They don't even know how to go about it. So, Finding a counselor, I, I use this analogy all the time. Finding a counselor is kind of like finding a car. There's a lot of us out there, and we all do something a little bit different. <laughs> and what might strike somebody as really interesting or great about one car, another person might look at it and go, I hate that. I don't like that at all, right? So finding a counselor, and I don't know how many of you like car shopping, but car shopping can be fun at the beginning, but the longer you look, the more you're like, ugh. It is taking forever to find something that's in my price range and has the right amount of miles and all that kind of stuff. It just it gets it can beat you down after a while. Shopping for a counselor, unfortunately, is kind of the same thing. You have to go test drive some people to see what's going on with them. And I've had people, um, I've had people come and see me simply because of my beard. Like, literally, I had it's a... It's a great beard. Let's be fair. I mean... so sweet. <laughs> um, the, uh, I had a, a woman call me one time, and she was just like, you know, we're looking for a couples counselor. Um, she saw my... I have an ad on psychology today, and she goes, I saw your ad on psychology today. She goes, the one question I have for you, do you still have the beard? <laughs> and I said, yeah, actually, I do. She goes, good, because I think my husband will come talk to you, but I don't think he would come talk to anybody else, because you look like somebody that he could talk to. And I got to be honest, I get that a lot between beards and tattoos. Usually guys are like, oh, he seems like somebody I can sit and talk to. And no matter what the walk of life, it's funny because I get some people that, that come in and they haven't seen me and, they, and they're like, oh, okay. And then they chat with me a little bit and then they kind of get into it. Other people are like, no, you look like somebody I could talk to and I got to worry about stuff. So finding a counselor, you got to find somebody you feel comfortable with. And sometimes, unfortunately, you do have to kiss a couple different frogs before you can find your prince. But finding a counselor, I get that it's awkward because you're going into a place and you're talking to somebody about you. And a lot of times you're talking about stuff that you don't talk to anybody about, stuff you've held in for sometimes, you know, your entire life sometimes. There's a vulnerability to it. That's, that's why it's uncomfortable. That's why people don't want to do it. Vulnerable to how people are going to think about you. Vulnerable to what's going to be said. Vulnerable to what they're going to tell you to do. There's a lot of it that's unknown. So in that, um, finding a counselor, the best way to do it, in my opinion, is to ask somebody. You can ask somebody like a pastor. You can ask somebody like a coworker. I mean, even a friend or a family member. Almost everybody knows somebody who's gone to a counselor at some point in time. 
And like I said, it's, it's specific to you what you're going to like in that person. But, you know, like I said, psychology today has, you know, ads and pictures and stuff like that. I would also say that you got to like look at a person and have a bit of a connection with them. Because again, you're going to be sitting across from this person, looking at them and talking to them. If you don't like the way they look, it's going to be a little more difficult. It's like anything else I think that we do. So looking for the person that has the qualifications, looking for the person that has the look, looking, talking to somebody else who has had success with that person, all that's important. But ultimately, it's going to be about sitting with that person and starting a conversation. The good news is, while vulnerability is a factor in it, clients are in charge of what they say. Counselors have no ability to drag anything out of you. And you're in control of what you say. Now, I first thing I, I say in a session is like, you know, I get to go to school and learn how to be a therapist, but you don't get to go to school and learn how to be a client. So it puts people in an awkward position. But the fact is, I tell my, my clients first out the gate, listen, you tell me what you want to tell me. I'm going to ask questions. I might ask a question you don't want to answer. At that moment, you get to decide, do I want to answer that or don't want to answer that? I don't want to be lied to. That's not something I want to hear. But if it's something that's too deep, too quick, too whatever, tell me. Now, I might have a follow-up question to that, but I will respect a person's boundaries within that, that kind of session. So telling people that you're in control of what you tell a counselor, I think that provides a bit of relief. The other thing is you're the expert on yourself. Hmm. Nobody else knows you as much as you know yourself. You know, your, your mom knows you, but doesn't know you as well as you know yourself. Your spouse knows you, but does not know you as much as you know yourself. We walk around in our brains 24-7, 365, right? So we know who we are and how we are. That's uh, confidence that I want people to have coming in because I'm only working off of what you give me. And if you give me yourself, man, we can do some great work. But if you don't give me yourself, we're going to be limited. Right. So I always encourage people to seek out help if you think you need help and kiss a couple frogs, see where it goes. And don't feel bad if you start seeing a counselor. This is the other thing I tell them. If at any point, if it becomes, you know, not productive, you feel like you're not getting anywhere, you feel like you're not doing anything. It's OK to say, eh, I don't know that this is really a, we're at a place where I need to do this anymore. And sometimes it's just a matter that the counselor maybe was the person to start you off, but maybe not the person to carry you through. Or it could be that they started off and you started carrying you through, but you hit a wall and neither one of you can break through that. Sometimes it's time to change and it's okay. Counselors should know that. We, we're big boys and big girls and we can handle people telling us, eh, I think I need a change. And so the, again, that's a control that every client should be able to have. So if you go to lunch this afternoon and anybody asks you, what did you learn at church today? Kiss a couple frogs, see where it goes, okay? That's the bottom line for today. And I'm glad my mom's here today because I've been telling her for 35 years, <laughs> you don't know me. Anyway, uh, but uh, there, here's a scenario somebody, somebody sent us in. So say there's a couple, okay? And partner A is stressed about getting things done. And partner B wants to help, but every time they help, it's never to partner A's standards. So they just end up doing it themselves or redoing it. 
So how, how do you solve that conflict when they both feel stuck? Where partner A is like, oh my gosh, I have so much to do. No, there's no help. There's no help. And partner B is like, okay, well, I'll help. I'll, I'll do this. And, but then partner is like, no, you're not even doing it right. You're not, uh, just get out of the way. I'm just going to do it myself. So partner B feels, you know, I can't do anything right. You know, I can't help them. And partner A is just running themselves into the ground. Like, what, what would you tell a couple that's sitting down with you and telling you that kind of scenario? So um, in that scenario, it, it is interesting to me because if I'm a big person of if you, if you ask me for help, you'll get my help. But if you ask me for help and then tell me I'm doing it wrong, you can give me direction. But if I see a pattern of behavior in which every time I do something, it's not up to your standards, then I'm going to eventually go, yeah, that's not really for me anymore. And I think most people feel that way, right? Nobody wants to be told you're doing something wrong, right? In a couple where you have one person who is, has, you know, maybe higher standards, it's important to recognize that that's the person that has to come down. If you meet a professional basketball player, is the expectation that you're going to elevate your game immediately to play against that person? Or is the expectation that they're going to hold back a little bit so that it can be a little bit fun for you, mm. right? It's no different in this scenario. Somebody who's got high expectations and knows how they want something done, it's impossible for that other person to elevate themselves to their level of expectation because they're not in that person's brain. They don't know what it is that they want. And we can learn, right? If, if, if there are certain things, you know, stacking the dishwasher, Where's my wife? I'm exactly, trying, trying right? Crowd. There's always one person that knows how to stack a dishwasher, and the other person is such an amateur that you have no idea what you're doing, right? It's, it's a perfect example of, of, of a small thing, right? So in that scenario, quite honestly, I've gotten to the point where I stack it the way I stack it. If she wants to rearrange it, she can rearrange it. And she is better at it. I, I was never good at Tetris, so I couldn't, you know, <laughs> none of that stuff makes sense to me. Packing a truck, I'm not good at either. But um, in, in situations like that, it is important for the person who has those expectations and knows what it is that they want to do. They're the ones who have to come down in order for the person to actually help them in some capacity. For the person that's, you know, frustrated on a regular basis that I can't do anything right, it's important to recognize that your job is to do what you can do. I'm also a big fan of when you can, you do. And that's for everything. Exercise, diet, you know, uh, giving a hundred percent at work, you know, whatever it is, when you can, you do, because none of us are a hundred percent all the time. That's good. Right. So making sure that you recognize what it is that you can do and what you can't do. The other thing is having a conversation, making sure you have a conversation that, look, whenever I try to do something and you have to redo it after me, it does put me in a position of feeling like I'm you know, failing you on some level because that's kind of where it comes from, right? I hate to fail at something, and especially if it's something my partner wants from me and I don't do it right, then I'm failing. So having a conversation is the other, other important aspect of that. That's good. That's good. Um, this is another question that got sent in. So when my friend is anxious and I know what they need to hear or possibly do, how do I tell them without them getting mad at me or shutting me down? So if I've got that friend who's just, I kind of see them spiraling and they're anxious and they're anxious and they're like, I don't know what to do. And I, 
I, I know because I've been there or I have my own opinions or whatever, but I, you know, in today's day, sometimes if you just even share your opinion, you're coming off as judgmental or whatever. What, what do you, what would you tell somebody who feels like they're in that position of, they just don't know what to do. Do I speak? Do I not speak? Do I hold my tongue? I, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting question because knowing what somebody needs to hear is, is the key part of that question. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we always know what somebody needs to hear. Mm-hmm. We all have different impressions of how things can be. But if you meet somebody who's dealing with OCD or anxiety on a clinical level, there's a good chance that you can see the outcome that both of you want but the way to get to that outcome is probably going to be vastly different because one's more comfortable than the other at accomplishing it, right? Sometimes, especially in like marriage, it's important to recognize that when people are talking to us, they're not always looking for us to fix things. Sometimes it's just, I need somebody to hear me, right? To be heard is really, really important. Right. Um, and, and there are those people that, that, um, that do want you to help them fix things. But first and foremost, in any relationship issue, if somebody's talking to you, it's important to figure out, okay, are you wanting my input? Are you wanting me to fix it? Are you wanting me just to listen? That's an important aspect of it. Again, any relationship, whether that be a marriage or a friendship, it's important to kind of have that, that understanding. If they say, no, I want your input, all right, then you get to give it. Mm. And you get to give it, but I would also preface it by saying, well, this is, this is what I'm seeing, or this is what I'm thinking, right? And allow them to then internalize it, or honestly, they can internalize it or reject it, but also they need to recognize that if they reject it, now then they're left with whatever means they had to begin with. And there's a good chance they didn't have a means to begin with, right? And ongoing relationships where you feel like you feed into somebody and they don't, you know, they don't pick up what you're laying down, right? If they're not responsive to what it is that you're trying to help them with. I think it's important also to have that conversation. Listen, we talk about this stuff all the time and it seems like you bring things to me and I try to help you with it, but I don't think I'm helping you. Mm. What is it you need from me then? Right. Sometimes we, we are on automatic pilot just doing what we think is important to do or just kind of running in a direction. It's not always easy to see what's plain to see, but that's an aspect of it. The conversation is everything, much more so than the answer. It's the conversation that you're having to give mm-hmm. them a, a perspective if they're asking for a perspective. That makes sense. Um, this is, I, I know the person who sent this, so this is a, this is really hard for me to send this question. So I wanted to make sure we got this one, but, uh, you know, we talked about, um, uh, very little is unknown, right? Um, either it will be fine, it will work out, or, you know, if, you know, God forbid the worst could happen, death, you know, in our faith, we believe that we will live on. And this person sent this, what if death isn't the worst thing that could happen? And that's what drives my anxiety. What if the situation I'm in is so miserable you wished and actually prayed for death? The fear of being in this situation again where the, is where the anxiety comes from. Um, then what? Because you're not even sure how you survived this in the first place. So what would you tell somebody who feels like they're stuck in a situation where they're like, I, I want this to end. This middle of going through this muck, I, you know, I kind of wish I, something would happen to me. You know? uh, what would you tell somebody who's kind of in that? headspace. It's, uh, it's interesting because I, I have been watching 
Michael's series on this, and he's he's been given a lot of good direction from the spiritual aspect of what it is that has to happen with this. Um, <clears throat> in our life, when we go through something horrific and that changes us, there is a fear that that could happen again. And with anxiety, anxiety comes from what ifs. That's what anxiety is all based off of, is what ifs. Somebody who's gone through something and they maintain some anxiety about the thing that they've been through, it's important for them to know for themselves that they have come through it. They have come out on the other side of it. It didn't take them out. It might have been horrific. It might have been very uh, uh, devastating to them. The fact is, they've lived through it one time. There's a very good chance that they can live through it a second time. Secondary to that, who we are after going through an experience like that can change us to make us different people. And so our responses to it can be better because we're in a different place. Sometimes we have better support. Sometimes we have better counselors. Sometimes we have better, you know, medicine. I don't know. Whatever it is, we have uh, a, a better church, better friendships, healthier relationships. All of those things also factor into when we go through hard times or scary stuff, right? So the ability to recognize where I was then and where I'm at now, two totally different places. It's important to know that when anytime we go through something, because sometimes we do repeat patterns, especially like negative relationships. There's a lot of us that repeat negative relationship patterns. It's important to recognize, okay, what is this? Why am I doing this? Where is this coming from? Right? Secondary to that, the what if aspect of anxiety. Again, because this amygdala that's in the middle of your brain, God wired us for protection. God wired us to be fearful in that way. It's important to recognize also that the brain, there's no place in the brain that we've identified where faith falls. There's some prefrontal cortex discussion about, you know, that's a processing, right? But the actual faith that I, I use whenever I talk in, in session with clients with anxiety, when we talk about fear, the opposite of fear for me is faith. Faith that it's going to work out. Faith that it's going to be better. Not necessarily spiritual faith, but faith in the positivity of life or circumstances. So it's interesting that we're wired for the fear part of it, but we're not wired for the positive faith side of it. That's not something that's hardwired into our brains. That means that we have to exercise it. It's not something that just naturally comes to us. You don't have to process how to be afraid. That comes naturally. You don't have to process how to get your body pumping your heart faster. You don't have to process any of that kind of stuff. That happens automatically. Thinking, okay, this is going to be better, or thinking, wow, this, is, this, is, this could be an opportunity, right? This could be something positive in my life. That's all on you, and that's the only thing you can do for yourself in those moments. And Michael's sermons have talked about that, that ability to look at something and recognize the positivity in it or the ability to work towards that because our natural proclivity is to look at anxiety and feed into anxiety and be afraid of anxiety and then just continue this downward spiral. With clients that I have, if I'm talking to them about their anxiety, I tell them as much time as you give those negative thoughts, you have to give yourself the positive thoughts. Mm. Positive affirmations 
are a real thing. You know, uh, for those of you old enough to remember, like Saturday Night Live, Stuart Smalley sit in front of a mirror and say, "I'm good enough. I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me." <laughs> it's, it's it's a joke, but it is true at the same time. If you want to talk yourself into a negative space, you will talk yourself into a negative space. Mm. If you want to talk yourself into a positive space, you can talk yourself into a positive space. Wherever you point your face, that's the direction you're going to go. So in that downward spiral, it is important because we can be ridiculous with the downward spiral too. Uh, the what ifs that Michael was presenting about, you know, the, but, but what if this happens and then what if this happens and what if this happens? It's funny because we can take ourselves in the most ridiculous of places of fear, but we won't be ridiculous in our faith. Wow. So anybody who does the ridiculous, I tell them, be just as ridiculous with your positive thing. You know, what if, okay, what if somebody just walks up to me and hands me $10,000? Now we think, well, that's just silly. Yeah. But it's also silly to think, what if I lose my job and I'm homeless all of a sudden? Because there's a good chance that most of us do not can it happen? Sure, it can happen. But it can also happen to somebody to walk up to you and give you $10,000. Yeah. Quite honestly, right? Those of us who deal with anxiety, we have to look at our own, our own purpose and our own, um, how we do things, our own personal record, how we have done, successes we've had, personal relationships that have been positive, all that kind of stuff. We have to look at our own accomplishments to dictate how can we be. Because we can be very positive if we focus on the positive things. That's really, really good. That's awesome. Um, well, this is just the last question. Um, w- so where do you think God fits in the conversation of mental health? Where do, you, where do you think God fits into all of this? So as I said, sometimes I have people that come into my office and they have, they're people of faith. Other times they don't have faith. Um, and, and in those situations, honestly, if faith is, a, is, is something that they have and they, and they state that that's a thing for them. And that's the other thing I would say about finding a counselor. Make sure that they know you're a person of faith. Make sure that they know that's important to you. That way they are conscientious of it and they're respectful of it and they don't step on it and things like that. But um, where God fits into mental health is the same place that he fits into your physical health. He designed you. He knows where you are and he knows your pitfalls. He knows your worries. He knows your anxieties. He knows all those kind of things. I think having a faith actually allows us to look to somebody else at something else and recognize that faith aspect of positive trending. That's the relationship we can have with God. The, the lack of faith, in my opinion, certainly does make it a pretty lonely place to experience anxiety, depression, or mental health issues in general. God wants a relationship with us, not just because yeah, he doesn't want to control us. That's not what he's functioning is. He wants us to have an open heart to him. And that's actually what we want in all relationships, right? We don't want a relationship where someone else is controlling us. We don't want a relationship where um, we feel like we have to do more than them. And in, in God, we can find that kind of relationship. And I do believe that that does help people get through some dark times. Having the support of a church family and a pastor is also absolutely necessary for that kind of thing too. Resources are everything whenever you're going through some tough stuff. 
And being able to utilize resources is everything. So God falls into that category of utilizing a resource, and he wants it. It's not like he feels used in those times, right? He, that's, he, that, he's there for that purpose in that. That's good. That's awesome stuff. Well, hey, we're so glad that you came, talked to us. I could talk to you for hours. But isn't Kyle awesome? Isn't he a great Thank resource? You. So. Um, I want to pray for us this morning, and then uh, we're going to sing uh, one last worship song together that's a pretty special song to me as of late. But um, let's bow our heads together and pray first. Uh, Father God, I I just thank you so much for Kyle. I thank you for his wisdom. I thank you for uh, being willing to come and and speak to us today. Uh, God, would you just help us to continue this conversation? Um, Would you continue the work that you've done? Um, Would you help us? Um, to continue to work on ourselves and uh, to work on our mental health, God. It is something that you care about. You care about the body. You care about our mind. You care about our emotions. And so, God, would you help us to take what we've learned today and in this series and uh, to continue to apply it to our lives and continue to lay it at your feet um, and to put our faith in you and looking outside of our own strength and our own wisdom and our own um, selves um, to try to find balance in life and try to be better at life, God. Uh, We love you and we just thank you uh, for this message today. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, buddy, thank you so much for being here. It is uh, awesome to always see you, man. You are always good. Um, Will you guys stand with us uh, this morning? Uh, We're going to sing one last song together. Yeah, you guys can get that.